We have a very special interview for you today. Jeffrey Christian of CPM Group gives an interview like I've never heard before, at least on this program. You know, I think it goes a long way towards dispelling some of the myths of the gold market. So, Jeffrey Christian on Fort Knox, is it real? Arguably, he is the biggest expert on gold. He's been doing it on Wall Street. Goldman Sachs, you know, bought out the unit at Goldman Sachs, I think, and formed CPM Group. You know, he is one of the top experts. We're very lucky to have access to him. And he's very gracious for giving us his time. Yeah, so we have a one-of-a-kind interview with Jeffrey Christian coming up. Definitely surpassed my expectations. I had seen him on a recent interview on YouTube, and I thought to myself, you know, I have to do something a little different here because, you know, someone just posted an interview with Jeffrey Christian on all the markets. And so I did. And then after the interview, you know, after I just I, I want to ask Jeffrey about the mechanics of the gold market. You know, where is the gold? Where is the gold? You know, like, why not? Everybody debates Jeffrey on the conspiracy, everything. Are we forgetting the most obvious question of all? is where is the gold and how do we know? So that's what we delve into in this episode. And, you know, when you have someone with Jeffrey's experience, it's almost an outrage to go and ask him like, oh, can you go predict the future for us? When you have this wealth of knowledge that is just sitting there, this, you know, decades on Wall Street since like 79 that's the year I was born, okay? So it, it just made me think it's almost an outrage to ask this guy speculative questions about the future when he has so much to say that we can kind of, I don't want to say we can bank on, but that we can say, okay, this guy experienced this. This guy has a clue. So a very interesting interview coming up. You know, I don't even want to talk about the news because it's so awful. These images, I've only looked at a couple, and it's frankly too much for me to handle. These images coming out of Ukraine on the atrocities, and it reminded me of, you know, the the words that are going through my head are J.G. Ballard, who I wrote my master's thesis on, sometimes called the last classic surrealist. And he had this profound sort of note that he had written in an annotated version of the atrocity exhibition. You know, arguably the British response to Naked Lunch, and I'm not going to get deep into that, but he had this statement where he said, which I highly recommend, actually, it's very hard to look at the fiction, but the notes are very accessible. And he said, there are things that we shouldn't be rational about. And I was thinking about that as you think of these horrible war crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. And, you know, the rational thing to do is, well, Russia is a nuclear power and all these sorts of things, and you can be all rational about it. But, you know, like at a certain point, you just kind of – I think the West is getting fed up. I, I don't think it's just me. I think the West – and and which is quite dangerous from a rational perspective because this could escalate. Uh, you see Europe wants to cut off coal shipments. I mean – Jeffrey Christian had a very interesting point that he made in the interview that he was basically arguing if you cut off the natural gas shipments to Europe, say Germany and Italy in particular, this war ends tomorrow. I'm not convinced it ends that quickly, but I take his point. 
probably from a financial perspective, things do start to get much dicier for the Russians. So, which leads me to wonder, like, I think Germany is still reluctant to go with nuclear. I think they're still not jumping in that boat. And I'm, you know, what else was going through my head is I was thinking about John Gorman, our guy from the Canadian Nuclear Association, who's been on the program. I kind of want to have him on. Maybe I'll email him this week and see if he's available because I want to know from his expert perspective, if he even has an answer to this question, he may not. How long would it take for Germany to get their nuclear power plants running? How long would that take? It's a pretty interesting question, isn't it? Because, you know, Europe, Germany and Italy in particular are in this hostage-like situation brought on by themselves, you know, and I understand the rationale. You get trade links going and that will keep Russia in line as much as anything, create a kind of interdependency. It did not work out that way. It basically funded a huge war machine from the looks of it. And, uh, you know, Merkel, her legacy is taking a hit. And, you know, I don't know if we can severely blame her because you can see the intent and the rationale and it's all quite reasonable and it's not dumb. But when you, you know, when you also think of how the U.S. was protesting this the whole time, this Nord Stream 2 and just the whole thing, it looks like they were right, doesn't it? I mean, it seems unquestionable at this point. So turning to the markets quickly, again, bonds stand out at 2.456%. So remember Gareth Soloway last week talking about the bond market, how you know 2.5% is his line in the sand. And let me just get the latest number here from CNBC. Bonds, 2.463%. Okay, so I think for most of the week, it dipped back a little bit to like 2.35. We were at like 2.5. For Gareth, it's like you don't need to go basically any higher than 2.5%. Or once you go higher than 2.5%, you are in a new world if it stays up there for a few days. And, you know, and here's a headline on CNBC, 10-year Treasury yield rises back near 2.5%. So the world has not gotten any more boring in the last week since we last spoke. Gold at $1,930, in my view, still looking attractive. And uh, oil back above $100. I think it dipped back down, and now it's at $103.92 on WTI. Brent crude at 108 so, yeah, and Bitcoin has still the spring in its step, but it's kind of stalled out a little bit. So we'll see which way that goes. Other than that, we still have this event that is coming up with Pierre Lassonde. Just go to events.northernminer.com and get a ticket while you can. The last one sold out. Just go to events.northernminer.com. Click on Speaker Series Toronto Pierre Lassonde, June 8th. Hit the register now. And you can still get a ticket and you get a gourmet lunch with that. It's 10.30 to 3 p.m., $85. And it sounds like uh, the networking opportunity of networking opportunities for the mining industry because it's not just about talking to Pierre. There's everybody else that's showing up to that too. So that just sounds like 10 network opportunities put into one there. 
Tickets are already starting to sell here. So do not delay events.northernminer.com. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, I'm going to start with this story from Mining.com. Metals World Agonizes Over War But Keeps Buying from Russia. And this is actually Bloomberg News via Mining.com. So the news of the hour, the news of the month, probably the news of the year. Last month, 13 copper industry representatives at the London Metal Exchange were asked whether Russian metal should be blocked from its warehouses. Ten of them said yes. The general consensus was no. But when advisory groups for nickel and aluminum discussed the same question, the general consensus was no. I wonder, that was probably before the weekend when all these images came out. The LME, let me just look at the date. Yeah, April 4th. I guess this is a Monday story, but again, this survey was probably taken on before the weekend. The LME, which is the ultimate decision maker says it won't take action that goes beyond government sanctions, which so far have left most of the metals industry untouched. But the behind-closed-doors discussions reflect a wider angst over whether to keep buying from Russia, as the industry weighs the stigma from the war against its own commercial interests, and the fact that vital metals like aluminum and copper were in short supply even before the invasion of Ukraine. Right, so they're treating it like a potential PR problem. You know, at least this is the way that Bloomberg News is describing it. You know, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, we are back to these images. So continuing in this story, for now, Russian metal is largely still flowing to the world's factories and building sites. Many traders and fabricators who buy from Russian companies are tied into pre-existing purchase deals that can extend over years. And commodity merchants have a well-earned reputation as buyers and financiers of last resort when others have long backed away. Still, a growing number in the industry say they won't take on new Russian business, and some are actively working to disentangle themselves. That makes it even harder for Russia's metal producers to sell whatever output is not already contracted, and may ultimately force them to cut production if there's no change by the time long-term deals come to an end. For the LME, the risk is that material mined in Russia starts piling up at its warehouses because it has nowhere else to go, creating dangerous dislocations at the nexus of the global metals trade. And there's a little chart here, well worth going to this story on mining.com. Russia exports 45% of the world's palladium, according to JP Morgan. 15% of the world's platinum, 9% of the world's gold, 8% of the world's oil, 6% of gas, 5% nickel, 5% wheat, aluminum, 4%, etc. And we have a quote here from Roland Herrings, chief executive officer of copper giant Orubus AG, which is represented on the LME Copper Committee. We see from our customer base there is hardly any interest to buy Russian metal if they can avoid it. And they can. And the article continues, if the metal flows to the LME instead, quote, then you have this phantom stock which has influence on the market because it shows high stock levels, but nobody wants it. The question of what happens to Russia's metal exports is of vast consequence to global markets. It's a key supplier of palladium, nickel, aluminum, steel, and copper. Prices for all those metals set new all-time highs in March, although steel is the only one to be the direct target of sanctions so far. Orubus, Europe's largest copper smelter, is, quote, trying to get out 
of its contracts for Russian supplies and is in favor of sanctions against metals, Herring said in an interview last week. Quote, I believe in the end, whatever money we will pay will end up in the wrong pockets. Norwegian aluminum company Norisk Hydro ASA said it was taking the minimum possible under its contracts with Russian companies and was aiming to reduce that further. There are still buyers for now, even in Europe. Russian metal producers like Norilsk Nickel, and Jeffrey Christian mentions Norilsk in our interview, and United Co. Russell International tend to sell on annual or multi-annual deals to big industrial groups, and for the most part, these contracts are still being fulfilled, according to people familiar with the matter. Traders like Glencore, which has a deal to buy aluminum from Russell until at least 2024, and Trefigura Group, which has a long-standing relationship with Nornickel, are also fulfilling contracts in Russia. Still, there are big challenges. Most container shipping lines have stopped calling at Russian ports. Precious metals like gold and palladium are typically sent to Switzerland or London by plane, but most flights out of Russia are now grounded. And Glencore announced that it would do no new business in Russia. Traders say it's nearly impossible to find banks willing to finance new purchases of Russian metals, even in China, the world's biggest metal consumer. So there's a quote here at the end. Read the whole article. I'm just sort of skipping through it here. The Western world is going to have to work out ways of using less Russian metal, end quote, said Duncan Hobbs, research director at Metals Trader Concord Resources. We will see some redistribution of trade flows as a result of what has happened even if the fighting stops tomorrow. And you see the LME is actually weighing in on atrocities. Again, I think this is, I could be wrong, but I wonder if this is before the weekend or after. The LME committees only have an advisory role, but the exchange is also wrestling with the issue. Chief Executive Matthew Chamberlain told Bloomberg TV, the LME want to make sure it, quote, can't be part of financing any type of atrocity, end quote, and was in talks with governments. I imagine all these talks are being fast-tracked right now. Yeah, I just imagine all these talks are being fast-tracked. After this weekend, the game has changed. Emotional events in a war can be turning points. The outrage, you know, because we are not rational at our core. Okay, so moving on. Uh, we have a, just going to touch on this story by Naimul Karim. Investments from autocratic states need full ICA review, says Parliamentary Committee. So Canada is basically saying any authoritarian government that's trying to buy any mining company that is Canadian listed should have a review. All investments made by firms from authoritarian regimes should undergo the complete security review process stated in the Investment Canada Act. A parliamentary committee said in a new report that analyzed the acquisition of Neolithium, a Canadian-listed company by China's Zijin Mining. Now, this was an interesting one because if I remember correctly, there basically wasn't much of a Canada connection. It was basically listed in Canada, but mostly the company was not really based in Canada. They basically were taking advantage of the Canadian markets. But as things develop here, I think the West, including in Canada, I think everybody's a lot more comfortable to get a lot more aggressive. Frankly, again, the escalation continues. So just want to touch on that. Miners welcome Biden's Defense Production Act use as urgently needed. You see how like our trade newspaper here is at the middle of all these headlines. 
you see natural resources, right? I mean, it's kind of like it's not the most exciting topic for the world news until it, it is. And then it be, it's like national security. It becomes the topic. Also by Naimul Karim, mining companies and analysts have described U.S. President Joe Biden's decision to authorize the Defense Production Act to increase battery metals production and reduce the country's reliance on China and Russia as an urgent move that provides further proof of the minerals growing importance in the geopolitical arena. The act gives the president authority to prioritize the production of specific materials over others. It was invoked at least twice last year to increase production supplies linked to the coronavirus pandemic and raise fire hose supplies to tackle the unusually high occurrence of wildfires in the United States. And we have a quote here from Henry Van Ruyen, CEO of Talon Metals. Quote, we are now seeing an urgent whole-of-government approach to addressing both the current U.S. dependence on Russia and China for battery materials and the energy transition imperative. President Biden's actions today make clear that there is a bipartisan consensus that the battery material supply chain from mine to recycling is a national priority. Very interesting. Moving on. LME introduces 15% daily price limits for all metals. So after the fiasco with nickel a few weeks ago, uh, the LME is bringing in a 15% upper and lower daily price limit for all its physically delivered metals plus cash-settled cobalt. It said on Monday, this is by Reuters via mining.com, the exchange also said it wanted to introduce OTC trade reporting across the board and that a first step was to extend the provision of OTC daily position reporting as is now implemented for nickel to other metals. So just another little note on the LME there. You see how important the natural resources are becoming in this whole narrative as they fund, you know, the war machine in Russia and as the West needs these materials. So the LME just keeps popping up. As the, main, as the main metals trading hub in the world, as far as I understand. And a couple of stories here on government and mining companies. Chile environmental regulator files charges against tech at Cubreda Blanca. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, tech resource. Canada's largest diversified miner is facing eight charges filed by Chile's environmental regulator, SMA, which claims the miner failed to comply with measures to avoid impacts on vegetation and animals at its Cabrada Blanca copper mine. Four of the preliminary charges are considered, quote, serious, and they include the allegedly deficient rescue and relocalization of Vizcachas, rodents native to South America belonging to the Chinchillas family, which have given South African bullion producers Goldfields more than one headache. Uh, you know... In some places, they're glad if they get rid of the rats, but I don't know what the situation is here. But yeah, rodents. Interesting. The permit for the Cabrata Blanca mine include 13 resolutions that regulate different areas of open pit copper extraction, as well as truck hauling to the port of Iquinque, SMA said in a statement. And apparently the new mine section that they're working on, Cabrata Blanca Phase 2 or QB2, is considered by tech to be its most important growth project and is slated to begin operations in the second half of the year, which would double the company's copper production by 2023. So, you know, Latin America continues to be a difficult place to work these days. And also, Sentara Gold hands Kumtor Mine to Kyrgyzstan, ending the dispute. It's also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Sentara Gold and the Kyrgyz Republic have reached an out-of-court settlement in which the Canadian miner agrees to hand over its expropriated Kumtor operation to the country's government 
ending an almost year-long dispute over the asset, the deal to be announced by Kyrgyz President Sadir Japarov on national television will see Sentara transferring ownership of the mine to its wholly owned subsidiary, Kumtur Gold, and an affiliate to state-owned refiner, Kyrgyzatlan OJSC. In exchange, Kyrgyzatlan will return its 26% stake in Sentara back to the company, which plans to cancel the shares. Yeah, so Sentara is giving it back. I guess we're not finding out yet what they're getting for it. But again, you see the importance of these resources. The president is going to be going on TV to be announcing the deal. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on April 5th, gold is trading at $1,926.02 per ounce. That is $15 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.49 per ounce. That is $0.15 cents lower than last week. And platinum is trading at $996.04 per ounce. That is $18 higher than last week. And palladium is also trading higher at $2,326.02 per ounce. That is $96 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.71 per pound. That is $0.05 cents higher. Aluminum is trading at $1.59 per pound. That is $0.04 cents lower than last week, and lead is trading three cents higher at a dollar nine per pound. Nickel is trading at fourteen dollars and eighty-six cents per pound, so that is a dollar twenty-seven lower than last week. And tin is trading at nineteen dollars and ninety-one cents per pound. That is fifty-six cents higher than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at thirty-seven dollars and forty cents per pound. And zinc is trading three cents higher at a dollar eighty-eight per pound. Zooming out, it seems like a bit of a indecisive week in commodities. They remain elevated, yet they're not uh, breaking out to new all-time highs. I mean, maybe the biggest story is nickel coming back down a little over a dollar, down to fourteen eighty-six from sixteen thirteen. But otherwise, treading water here. I mean, maybe zinc at a dollar eighty-eight. Zinc is actually probably the standout, only three cents higher. But this is the highest price we have recorded here since we started two and a half years ago. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jeffrey Christian, a man who needs no introduction in the mining industry, managing partner at CPM Group, and we have one of the most interesting discussions I've ever had on the gold market, probably the most interesting. So with that, I will say no more. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group. And Jeffrey has been on the program several times, and we're always delighted to get what I like to call his sober take 
on the market. So, Jeffrey, welcome back to the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks for having me here, Adrian. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, likewise. And I was seeing online there that you have a new gold yearbook that CPM Group is putting out. I've been hearing about these yearbooks for years as I've listened to interviews with you, but I've never actually opened one or downloaded one or bought one. What are in these gold yearbooks? They are about 200 pages long. Uh, I'll send you a copy uh, after. Sure. <laughs> uh, they're about 200 pages long, and they actually started in the late 60s, early 70s at when Jay Aaron had a research department. And uh, I took over the research department when they hired me in 1980, uh, and they were producing an annual gold review and outlook. And, you know, the gold market, as is the silver market and platinum group metal markets, is extremely secretive. There's a lot of data on mine production because the mining companies have an economic interest in putting that out for investors and they have a regulatory obligation uh, to put it out if they're a public company. But there's virtually no information. Everything is secretive for secondary recovery from scrap to fabrication demand to investment demand. And central banks used to be much more secretive about their gold, too. Uh, they're far less secretive now than they used to be. So in the late 60s, as the gold market was liberalizing and opening up, Jay Aaron created a research department to study gold and silver. And then when I came in 1980, we added platinum group metals more intensely. They had uh, done a little bit there. But you basically, what we do is we gather basic statistics and we make estimates of mine production, secondary recovery, fabrication demand, investment demand, central bank activity. So it's one of these sources, and it's the best source, and it's the longest running source of basic data on gold supply and demand. And then we put on top of that our analysis. So a lot of people say it's the Bible for gold, and it's a basic desk reference because it has all of this information. Some of it goes back, way back. And uh, we've been updating it every year, really since the 70s. As I said, you know, I, I took over the operation in 1980. We merged into Goldman Sachs and we became the Commodities Research Group in 81. We spun off and set up CPM Group to be an independent research company in 86. And every year we produce this thing. Very interesting to actually hear the details on that product. So on that note then, you know, I was wondering to myself before this interview started, where is the gold and how do we know? And further to that point, and how does it move around? Can you talk to us about the mechanics of the yeah. gold market? Yeah, my company exists in part because the precious metals markets are so secretive. And precious metals markets' secretive nature is one of the things that attracts investors and others to it. You know, it's nobody else's liability, but in addition to that, it's extremely secretive. There is, you know, an enormous amount of gold in refined form above ground. And, you know, 1.4 billion ounces are held by investors, another 1.1 billion held by central banks. And where that gold is, is largely secretive. Like London only recently, a few years ago, started publishing data on how much gold and silver they have in inventories in the London market. There's gold that is registered with the COMEX or the Shanghai Gold Exchange or the Shanghai Futures Exchange, 
and it's stored in regulated depositories, and that gold is reported. But if you go to one of those depositories, the gold that's reported are the 100-ounce gold bars that you can deliver through the, the COMEX gold futures contract. There's much more gold stored in one-ounce coins and one-kilo bars and all sorts of other things that don't meet the COMEX delivery standards. This is gold all over the place. And investors will own gold and they'll store it in their own house. They'll store it in private depositories. It's all over the place. You know, I, I sometimes tell the anecdote about talking to the Central Bank of the Southeast Asian country. And the government had decided it wanted to start buying more gold and diversify its monetary reserves into gold. But the government had also decided that any gold it bought should be stored in country and not in a third, uh, in, a, in a second country. And so they were talking to us about the logistics and they said, we don't have any depositories in gold to, to store gold, any public depositories in our country to store gold. And we started talking and I told them that we showed them some data which we had compiled that suggested there were more than 10 million ounces of gold held by private investors in their country. And they were flabbergasted. You know, where'd you get this information? I said, well, some of it's yours. It's important in export data. We have national metal accounts for major countries. So how much gold is being produced and refined in that country? How much gold is coming in as imports? How much is our estimate of being fabricated into products, jewelry or electronics or other industrial products? Uh, how much is being exported? And then you get a residual and you say, well, okay, that residual sometimes is called apparent investment demand. But let's dig down and say, where is that residual? And it could be that we're underestimating fabrication demand. There may be gold that's coming out of the country that doesn't get reported in import statistics. Import and export statistics are much less verified than most people think. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, leakage coming in and going out of countries and such. So you come up with this figure of the amount. And, and the government, the central bank, was just flabbergasted. They said, this is an enormous amount of gold. Who owns it? He said, well, a lot of investors outside of your country actually find your country very suitable for investing. And then you have a lot of investment within your country. And you have a lot of people who use gold as a quasi form of savings. So some of it's a lot of it's held in small amounts throughout the, the country, but some of it's held in private depositories. Yeah. And and that's not an atypical story. This is, you know, one of the things that people that attracts people to gold and silver is the secretive nature of it. And there are all kinds of anecdotes about people who have you know, bought their way out of Nazi Hungary by gold or after the war, bought their way out of communist Hungary with gold you know, that they had squirreled away. So there's a gold all over the place. Now, you see some big shipments, you know, uh, central banks move gold around and stuff. And sometimes you see that. And, and mostly it's, you know, it's secure air freight these days that moves it around. And by secure air freight, is it who's like, and you don't need to tell me the name of the company or anything, but is it governmental security or is it private security? It's almost all private security. Interesting. Uh -huh. Even if a central bank is moving it, it's not like they're going to get the army in usually, I assume, to protect it. The army often protects the gold. <laughs> oh, they do. Okay. Yeah, in, in, in many countries. And I, I understand you want to talk about Russia and 
Yeah, there are anecdotes about the gold that's held in Russia and who actually holds it and who actually owns it. Um, but yeah, the the government, the the air, the army almost always gets involved in gold. I mean, one of the biggest moves in gold history was we used to have about 54 million ounces of gold in the U.S. assay office in downtown Manhattan, and that was U.S. Treasury gold. And at the time, this goes back to the 70s, 80s, I guess maybe even into the 90s. You know, during the gold standard, uh, the F New York Fed held gold for foreign governments and central banks, but not the U.S. government. So the U.S. gold was held at the U.S. assay office a few blocks away. And literally every day, guards would move carts of gold bars between the two facilities, you know. Oh, Germany has a bunch of dollars, so the Bundesbank is remitting those dollars to the U.S. Treasury for gold, and the the dollars are coming into the U.S. Treasury or a Fed facility, and there'd be a cart full of gold going from the assay office to the New York Fed and put into the cage that, that belonged to the German Republic. And that was the way it was until 1971. 1980s, 1990s, you start, you know, the government starts saying, well, We've got all this gold in Lower Manhattan, which is not the greatest place to say, store it. You know, as, as Humphrey Bogart says in Casablanca, there are certain parts of New York City I wouldn't invite the Third Reich to go into. So let's move it to the Mint's facility next to West Point. So West Point Military Academy. And a lot of people think that the West Point depository that the U.S. Treasury has is in West Point military grounds. It's actually right next to it. Not everybody knows where West Point is who are out of the U.S. Like I've heard of West Point. Where is West Point? West Point is up the Hudson River about 20 or 30 miles from New York City. Okay, so New York State. Yeah, it's New York State. Okay. Yeah. So in the Treasury was saying, well, how do we move 54 million ounces of gold from New York City to West Point in a secure way? And and there the the head of security for the treasury at the time was Bill Daddio. He's a really great guy to know. And he said, you know, people coming up with all kinds of strategies, you know, a suitcase full or an armored car full. And he said, okay, how many armored tractor trailers do we need to move 54 million ounces of gold? And they said, you know, 14 or whatever the number was. And he said, okay, on this day, we are going to have 14 armored tractor trailers lined up on the FDR. We're going to close the FDR drive. We're going to have 14 armored trucks and we're going to have military helicopters overhead. We're going to have, you know, armored personnel carriers and jeeps on either side. And we're going to make a convoy. We're going to load up those trucks. We're going to have a rolling closing of highways. Once those trucks are loaded, we're going to go up the West Side Highway, cross the uh, George Washington Bridge, up the Palisades Parkway to West Point. And at the end of the day, it will all be moved. It will be the single most visible movement of the single largest amount of gold in the history of mankind. And no one in their right minds would try to interrupt it because it's going to be surrounded by military vehicles and you're going to have the news crews watching it. And that's what they did. Wow. So, I mean, it just shows the importance of gold to state the obvious. But I mean, if they're shutting down highways and using military, I assume that was military, right? Yeah. Armored trucks and another anecdote about the U.S. because you sure. know people know that we have always worked with the U.S. Mint and the U.S. Treasury, and we've done a lot of really interesting things. And the U.S. government, the Treasury, has this really 
intense. Gold is always in its possession. So if you're buying, you know, when, when they sell gold coins, they use working inventories to make the coins and they sell them on a daily basis. And let's say that they sell 4,000 ounces of gold in a given day in coin form. They buy 4,000 ounces of gold, good delivery bars in the London market, and they arrange for it to be promptly shipped to West Point. Now, that is grossly inefficient financially. You know, you can wait until you've got uh, 16,000 ounces and the per unit, the, the per ounce cost of shipping that from London to West Point is roughly the same as 4,000 ounces. <laughs> yeah. So you can shave your costs dramatically. And in the 90s, we were advising the Mint and we said, you know, you guys should pool your gold, gold in London, and then when you've got a shipment, ship it. And also, you don't make the blanks in West Point. You make you have the blanks manufactured for you elsewhere, so you can ship it directly to the manufacturers and save shipping costs. So there are all kinds of things you can do to save money. And the U.S. Treasury said, no, we want that gold in our possession continually, and we will not pool gold, not even at the Bank of England. We want our gold in our possession. And I said, well, you know, you have at the time billions. Now it's trillions of dollars <laughs> that you store at central banks around the world. I guess it's billion dollars, billions of dollars of U.S. dollars that the U.S. Treasury stores in central banks and other facilities around the world. You know, holding your assets in a third party uh, depository is not unusual for you. And the Treasury said, yeah, but this is gold. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and and this is part of the myth of gold. Like this is what makes it so interesting. Because and this is part of its whole, as I was saying, it's myth. It's it's real. Yeah. This it's isn't a number real. on a screen. This isn't a piece of paper. This is the thing. It is the money. Yeah. You know, so you have all these crazies on the internet who talk about how the treasury de depreciates gold and doesn't care for it and treats it like a thing and maybe it's not even there but the reality is that the treasury as the world's largest holder of gold is much more serious about gold than any of those guys are <laughs> yeah. and it's not going to get out of your hands the ultimate gold bugs the the u.s treasury uh final question on the u.s before we move on to say russia which is super interesting as well so, and I don't even know if you're at liberty to talk about it. I assume you are. So is it all all the U.S. gold? Is it at West Point then? I mean, what about this Fort Knox myth and, and all this? Uh, where is the U.S. gold or do we know and should we know? Yeah. The Treasury actually publishes a list on an annual basis, maybe quarterly, of where its gold is stored. And the largest tranche is stored at Fort Knox. I don't have the numbers ahead off my top of my head. But off the top of my head, I would say probably like 157 million ounces is stored at Fort Knox. The second largest depository, I believe, is West Point because that's where they make the coins. So they have working inventories. Plus, they have that gold that came up from the assay office uh, in uh, the 80s, I believe it was. Um, and uh, then there's a little bit of gold stored at like the Denver Mint and a little bit of gold stored at uh, a couple other mint facilities. And yeah, and another myth is that, yeah, they, they have a paper audit every year by KPMG, which mm -hmm. is published on the internet at, you know, trej.gov. Yeah. And they had a deep audit where they 
counted every bar, checked the serial number, weighed it, and then took a sample of uh, random sampling of bars and had those assayed. And it took, I think, eight years to do that because you have 261 million ounces divided by 400. Yeah, 400 ounce bars. And, and it's an enormous document. We actually have a copy of the summary document, which is about that thick. And, you know, there are people who always say, well, you know, they don't they don't know how much gold they have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they actually do. And, you know, Ron Paul, when he was a representative, always said that they should audit it. And they said, you know, and, and on his way out the door, his colleagues let him have a hearing. And the Treasury came and they said, well, we do audit it. And here, sir, is this audit <laughs> that we just completed. And he said, you never told me that you had this. And they said, well, you never asked. <laughs> you go on television and claim that we're not auditing. You never actually called the Treasury and said, hey, do you guys audit that gold? If you had, we would have told you. I think we're making huge progress here on some major <laughs> gold myths on the Northern Miner podcast yeah. today, Jeffrey. Okay, so now moving to Russia, I mean, the Russian gold has become an item in the narrative here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with all the sanctions and everything, and I want to actually get into that a little bit with you. But I guess first question, simple, is what about the Russian gold? Uh, how do we know it's there? And I guess you've been using your approximations and using all your metrics for the last 10 years. So you can mm -hmm. probably start to triangulate a little bit or start to, you know, approximate. Uh, and you see the mine production, you see maybe what gets bought. What's there and how do we know? I guess the same question with Russia. And what's your take on that? Yeah, we have estimates. The Russian Central Bank is part of the International Monetary Fund. So as such, they report their monetary reserves. And the monetary reserves at the end of January were just shy of 74 million ounces of gold. So that's their monetary reserves. We have estimates and believe that there's probably another 50, 55 million ounces or so that may be held by the Russian army. And I'll get back to that. Uh, but, you know, so we have our estimates and they're cobbled up from what you could collect. And under the Soviet era and even under the Russian era, mine production in, in, in Russia was state secrets. Refined production was the state secrets, imports, exports, all ever, all aspects of gold and other commodities were state secrets. So there were a handful of economists uh, back in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, and I was one of them, who studied Soviet metals markets and stuff. You know, and people make jokes about the Soviet poster behind me. That's what I did. And we had estimates as to how much is there, but every so often, the curtain would lift a little bit and you'd see the information. So we had people who would read Pravda and Izvestia searching for scanning for data uh, and information and the odd note about a, a gold mine uh, accident or, or uh, projection in newspapers there. And, and that's where we came up with our estimates. Now, then they'd lift the curtains. So one time was when they joined the IMF in 1989, I think it was. You have to, as a member, you say, well, these are my monetary reserves on a monthly basis. And our Russian counterparts at the time came to us and said, you're publishing data that says that there's about 68, 70 million ounces of gold in Russian Soviet government holdings. And we're about to join the IMF. We're going to tell them that we have 12.9 million ounces of gold. 
I said, oh my God, our numbers are, are way off. And he said, no, 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 don't change your table. Where you're reporting monetary reserves, the Soviet government, we're not allowed to say because it's state secrets, but the Soviet government may have other gold that's not being counted as monetary reserves at this time. So that was 1989. 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. The other 14 republics of the former Soviet Union say to the Russian government, we want our share of the government's gold. And the Central Bank of Russia says, okay, we have 12.9 million ounces. And on a pro rata basis, this is yours. You know, you get a 10 ounce bar. And I think the Ukraine got like about a half a million ounces or something like that. And Ukraine government complained. And they said, no, we want our share of the Soviet government gold. And we read somewhere that it's about 68 or 70 million ounces. And they actually had retained a, a consultant who had cobbled those numbers together. <laughs> and um, so they went to the Central Bank of Russia and said, you know, we want our share of all of the gold that the Soviet government had. And the Central Bank of Russia said, well, we've given you your share of the monetary reserves that we hold. If you want to talk about your share of any of the rest, go talk to the Russian army. Yeah. So there seems to be a large chunk of gold that's held by the Russian army as its reserves in case it needs to replace 100 or 200 tanks on short notice or 100 helicopters and stuff like that. Uh, so there seems to be extra gold there. There was a third anecdote, which was at one point after the Soviet Union collapsed, the Russian government was consolidated. They used to hold their gold in depositories scattered around the Moscow area. And that was just an assumption that we had in the West. And then they came to a few people in the West and they said, we're building this massive new depository to hold all of our gold. And we uh, need to move it all into the depository. And you have some knowledge and experience about how to move 54 million ounces of gold <laughs> in one day. Talk to us about the logistics of moving so much gold so fast and securely. So there, there are times when the curtains are lifted and you can sort of see secrets there. And it's not just Russia. I mean, you know, there was a, a large country, oil exporting country in the Gulf of uh, the Persian Gulf area that recently added a few years ago, added some gold to its monetary reserves. And people said, oh my God, they've been buying gold. And no, they hadn't bought gold. This was a strategic reserve of gold held by some other part of the kingdom. And for whatever reason, they said, let's get rid of that agency and we'll shift the gold to the monetary reserves. So when you hear a story like that, do you go, "We, I knew it, that gold was there? Or do you say, oh, there, like, do you get surprised at times? I'm sure you do. I get surprised sometimes. Uh, yeah. It's funny, last week someone called me the dog that didn't bark, and I, I cocked my head. That's a phrase from a Sherlock Holmes story, and what it was was uh, a crime was committed, and the watchdog didn't bark, and that told Sherlock Holmes that whoever committed the crime was within the inner circle, and the watchdog recognized him, and so he didn't bark when he approached Right. The dog uh, knew who it was. Like he we, was familiar with the person. We we get surprised sometimes. We get amazed more often. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a secretive area there. 
you know, and, you know, one of the first things that we do is we call, oftentimes we call the people that are involved because we know them or they know us, you know. Uh, when Aaron was bought by Goldman Sachs, Goldman was more organized and, and bureaucratic perhaps than Aaron. Aaron was highly organized and incredibly efficient. Uh, but at one point I was going to go to Europe and I was going to have dinner with uh, the head of foreign exchange of one of the major central banks in Europe. And all of a sudden I have all these Goldman people in my office saying like, what do you, you just call up the head of foreign exchange reserves and say, hey, I'm going to be, you know, in your town uh, next week. Can we have dinner? And he says, yes. I said, yeah, well, well, we have a foreign exchange department. We have an international government department. You know, we coordinate all this stuff, you know. And I said, oh, well, at Jay Aaron, we would just call him up and say, hey, you know, I'm going to be there. You want to have dinner? And they'd say yes. Well, it, it's so interesting to me, like this whole conversation so far really is a testament to the power, in a sense, of gold. Like it's a real, again, it's it's what gold is. It's a real right. thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's so many questions I want to ask you. Maybe just a really, really quick one before we go back to Russia. And I want to ask you about this Russian ruble story. But before we do that, very quickly, in your universe or your world, is gold the foundation of money? Gold, the found. I guess it depends on how you do. I can define gold. I can define money. The question, sure. the word I need to find is foundation. Uh, yeah, gold has been the basis of most monetary systems throughout mankind, and there are a variety of reasons for that. And it is clearly money. Yeah, you know, but it's also quasi money, and it has served as the foundation of money for most of mankind up until 1971, really. Uh, but it still is in there. And if you look at gold, gold and silver trade like currencies. You know, there are people who look at this enormous volume of trading in gold and silver, and they say, you know, this, this is weird. Who's buying and selling all of that stuff? You know, they don't do that. The, the multiple of, say, the physical supply of aluminum to the trading volume of aluminum. Maybe it's 20 to one, it might be higher now, uh, but gold and silver are like 100 to one. It's not, it, they don't trade like commodities, they trade like currencies. So you say to yourself, again, you know, the dog that doesn't bark, you say to yourself, okay, I'm looking at something that trades 100 to one, not 10 to one or 20 to one like commodities. What am I looking at? Is that a conspiracy? Well, that's the easy one and then we go to dinner, you know, uh, but reality is, Let's see where else we see 100 to 1 physical to derivative uh, ratios. And it's the bond market, the treasury bond market, and it's currencies. Gold trades like a currency. And, you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Gold trades like a currency. Governments and people treat it like a currency. I think it's a de facto currency. Now you'll have those guys on the internet saying, well, he said currency, not money. <laughs> but that's a whole nother and, and we semantic go... debate that people who have nothing better to do will raise because it's their career to do that. <laughs> yeah, and we could we could go endlessly probably down that rabbit hole. So speaking of crazy stories on the internet, are you familiar <laughs> with this ruble story about how the Russian government has pegged the ruble. I don't know if peg is the right word, but where they were enabling, uh, uh, converting a certain, like we were talking earlier, a, a gram of gold for 5,000 rubles or whatever it was. 
What do you make of that story? Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, the fog of war. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there are a couple things going on. One is that the Russian government has lost hundreds of billions of dollars of monetary reserves in terms of foreign exchange. Not lost them, but they've been frozen, and they probably will never get it back because it'll be sued for reparations and and, and reconstruction issues. So the Russian government actually is is tight for currencies. Now, and if we wanted to end the war tomorrow, we would cut off Europe would cut off oil and gas exports. Uh, to Europe from Russia, and this war would be over. But the Russian government is tight for currencies, and it has this whole issue with European oil and gas exports, which are contractually paid for in either dollars or euros. And the Russian government went to Western European governments, I guess last week or the week before, and said, we want you to pay in rubles. And the German and other governments said, no, we're not going to. We have a contract. We're going to live up to the contract. You know, you're just trying to support the ruble and get it out of the seller by making us go find rubles. So the Russian government said, all right, well, you can pay for us in rubles or gold. And the German government said, no, we're not going to do that. You're going to get euros or dollars. So by the end of last week, they the Russian government said, okay, you can pay Gazprom Bank in euros, and it will convert those euros into rubles. And that's why the ruble has been rising. So that is a separate thing where they said you could use gold to buy oil and gas. That's separate. And any such transaction, were they to have happened, and there's no sign that any of them have happened, would have been priced at the global market price for gold. The separate issue, which is where the guys who say that uh, the ruble's been pegged to gold, it's not pegged to gold. What the government said was, given that our economy is maybe half of what it was two months ago in terms of output, and given that you know we have foreign currency issues and problems with the amount of money that the central bank has for the government to operate, we will resume buying gold. They haven't bought any gold for the government since April of 2020. When the oil price fell sharply, the Russian government suspended its its purchase program, and it may have bought one tranche since then. You know, so it's basically been out of the market for two years. And what they said is, we're going to resume buying gold from domestic refiners and miners, and we will pay. I think the price was five thousand rubles per gram, at a time when the gold price in the market was six thousand rubles per gram. So they were basically saying, we're going to give you a 16% discount <laughs> to the international market uh, for your gold. And we're the government of Russia, so you're going to sell us the gold. Now, it wasn't pegging the ruble to gold. It was saying, we have a fixed price that we're going to buy gold from domestic producers. And that fixed price is a discount to the global price. And if you look at the history of commodities trading, including gold and silver, when a government says we're going to buy gold or silver or sugar or aluminum at a discount to the international market price, what happens is producers stop selling to the government. Interesting. So it's almost like this, they're offering, okay, yeah, we'll convert at a discount, this 5,000 rubles, let's say, mm -hmm. for a gram of gold, and then we can go out and buy some more gold with that and get more right. gold and basically force the discount. And so, as, and as you say, these producers will not sell it because it's they'd probably be better off selling it somewhere else, I assume. Exactly, if they can. If they can't get it and sell out of the country and sell it someplace else, 
then they just hold it until such time as the the laws change. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. So just as we're kind of zooming out then to the general markets here, so just your take on Russia and briefly, because I know we're kind of going long on time here, these sanctions, are you concerned that there's going to be a bit of, and maybe these are too big a questions to summarize shortly, but are you concerned that there's going to be some blowback uh, in the Western economies? You know, Greece was such a huge issue and that's a, it seems like it's a much smaller economy than Russia. And here we're kind of shutting down Russia. Are you concerned? Like, I mean, as we were sort of discussing before, it seems like, as, as I was telling you, from my perspective, considering the risks that are in the market right now, everything all of a sudden seems very expensive to me in the last uh, right. you know, couple of months when you consider what can go wrong on a given day. You know, So I'm just kind of curious, are you worried about blowback with these sanctions? What are your thoughts on risk and everything that I've just said? Well, I think that there are a tremendous number of risks that already were existent in the global market and in the U.S. market and in financial markets and economics. And we've been very much concerned that the markets have been underpricing that risk. So you see stock prices very high compared to where you might think they should be on a risk-adjusted basis or a volatility-adjusted basis. And You've seen corporations reduce their stockpiling of strategic materials over time because, hey, we want to preserve our cash. We want to have free cash rather than stocks of aluminum or gold or platinum or anything like that. So I think that, you you know, the, the, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine has driven home to a lot of people that risk has been underpriced. And my view is that what you'll see is that as risk is repriced at a higher level, a lot of goods and services may see higher prices and a lot of other things like stocks may see lower prices. So I do think that there should be a thing. I mean, you know, uh, Greenspan, I think, in the early audits said, you know, the market is underpricing risk. If you looked at the credit spread between treasuries and corporate bonds, uh, it was far too low. And People were lending to corporations almost as a a less risky, well, as a less risky asset than it really was. And that came back to really hit the market. So the, the, the quick question is, I think that we have been underpricing risk. The Russians have brought that issue to the foreground. I think that you will see negative economic consequences around the world. I mean, Ukraine has been one of nine, they present provide like 90% of the neon in the world. And neon is used to create inert atmospheres for semiconductor manufacturing and other manufacturing. So there could be a real shortage of neon at some point in the not too distant future that could have ripple effects around the world in terms of manufacturing other goods and services. You know, people, it's very funny because you say that in a, a, a restaurant in, in, or a bar in New York City and people laugh and say, neon, yeah, who needs that? Well, you do because you're not going to have, a, you know, electronics industry if you don't have neon to manufacture the semiconductors. Yeah. And these shortages, I feel like right now they're abstract. You know, it really reminds me of uh, February of 2020 when there was this crazy virus going around. And it looked terrible, and the market continued to just hit new all-time highs, mm -hmm. and until all of a sudden the reality hit when you know three weeks later, four weeks later, economies are shutting down and nobody's right. leaving their house. And 
it kind of my concern is like you hear about wheat i mean neon it's almost like okay those are semiconductors this is food and what you see the reports you get it's just all terrible you know and i don't want to be overly pessimistic but it just seems it just back to that point that when you start to if you take these reports seriously which are fairly mainstream uh, you kind of feel like, again, I'm sort of like, I w- I'm usually a bull, but I'm getting pretty bearish on just every, well, maybe not everything, but just on the situation. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the Russian invasion has been a real shock to a lot of people to realize the risks that really hadn't been aware, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, watching over the weekend, the news of the atrocities that are being uncovered as the Ukraine army reoccupies areas. And they keep saying, well, you know, and I saw Secretary of State Blinken on the television yesterday saying, this is appalling what we're learning. And, you know, my view is like, how could you be surprised? You know, have you never read Russian history? (laughs) Did you never understand what the Russians, what the Soviet government did to its own people and the czarist government did to its own people before the Soviets? I mean, there's a cultural issue here, which is slash and burn. And, you know, how could you possibly be surprised by this? Yeah, especially when the Russians gave us months and months and months of notice. This is my concern, Jeffrey, is maybe they don't know the history or they don't know it that well. That's my sort of scary concern here. And they probably maybe they do. uh, But I I totally take your point. How could you be surprised uh, on a lot of this stuff? When the United States invaded Afghanistan and said, no, we're not here to fight al Qaeda. We're going to do nation building. I actually was at a meeting where there was a general from the War College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And we were talking about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And I said, do you guys not teach like, you know, Alexander who went around Afghanistan to get to India (laughs) or the Russian uh, history or the British efforts to to control Afghanistan? I mean, you know, Afghanistan has never been governable by an outside group going back to Greek history, you know, and, you know, and he said, no, we stopped teaching that stuff years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, that, yeah, well, there you go. A equals A. So, okay, as we wrap up here, lest we forget the actual gold market and silver and precious metals, how about your take on, you know, uh, what is your take on the gold and silver markets? Uh, if you want to take them one at a time, uh, what's your yeah. take? Well, I think gold and silver kind of go together, but yeah, focusing on gold. And again, we've been focusing on it because we're wrapping up our gold yearbook for Wednesday's launch and release. Um, I think the gold market, the big, the, you know, the price will be volatile as long as this war continues. At some point, there'll be a clear vision as to how the war resolves itself and the war premium will come off. But then you have all of those other factors, interest rate increases, inflation, real GDP, you know, currency market issues. So I think that, you know, perhaps humankind will ignore its long history of forgetting what it just learned. (laughs) Um, You know, you, you may see gold stay elevated because of the other risks present and the fact that, you know, any resolution of this war is not going to be a solution. It's going to be a temporary peace. Uh, And the Russians have demonstrated that there are going to be significant changes in the global balance of power economically, politically, 
socially, uh, you know, for a long time to come. So I think that, you know, you're going to see gold remain at elevated price levels. And our view is that some of those risks come home to roost at some point in the next four years and gold probably rises higher. Very similar view with, with silver. It stays volatile for a while, probably calms down in the second half of this year. Silver is suffering. Investment demand has not been as dynamic towards silver as it has been toward gold. So I think that silver may underperform gold a little bit. Platinum and palladium and rhodium, they are critical to Russia for foreign exchange, and they're critical to everybody else for auto catalysts. So I think that they will remain protected from sanctions or, or restrictions on exports from Russia, uh, but the prices will stay volatile. And I think one of the things you're seeing right now is that the auto industry, as I said, you know, I mean, if you go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, into the 90s, the auto industry, um, many auto major com auto companies had strategic stockpiles of platinum, palladium, and rhodium in case they needed extra metal and the current flow was interrupted. Most of them have gotten rid of those strategic stockpiles after the collapse of the Soviet Union and after the movement to multiracial democracy in South Africa, the political risks went away. The auto industry was suffering in the 90s and they got rid of those inventories thinking they didn't need them. Ford made a foray into palladium, which cost them billion dollars uh, because they mispriced it and misunderstood what they were buying in 2000, 2001. That aside, you haven't seen that. So what you're seeing now in PGMs is auto industry, catalyst manufacturers and others rebuilding strategic stockpiles because there is a risk of an interruption. And I think that that will keep these prices elevated. Yeah, I mean, I was I'm calling uh, palladium the rodeo of the of the metals there just with its crazy volatility. I think we were seeing as high as 3300 if if I'm not mistaken all the way down to 2300 a week later or mm -hmm. whatever it was 2 weeks later. I mean, I remember you telling us about the illiquidity of the palladium market when I saw that. Okay, so just as we wrap up then so I'm back to this other qu this question that I was kind of alluding to earlier but how concerned are you then, say, with like, I assume a lot of the palladium, from what I understand, comes out of Russia, the world's palladium, nickel. What's your take as someone who's kind of, uh, in a final question here, you know, like, what's your take on these? I think Russia was saying they're putting sanctions on on everybody that was sanctioning them, and they're not going to send their metals over or whatever the case is. How, how big of a deal is this from your perspective? I think that it's a, a bluff that's easily called. You know, the reality is that, well, there, it's a complex reality, but I think the bottom line is that Russia will not do that because it needs the foreign exchange reserves. There is a little bit of a risk because, you know, Norilsk is controlled by uh, Vladimir uh, Potanin, and he had been more friendly with Putin, but apparently had something of a falling out a couple of years ago, or so the rumors have it. So, you know, Putin's government may be less concerned about hurting the Rilsk and doing that. But I think that the bottom line is that they would be shooting themselves in the foot if they restricted nickel or PGMs exports. So I think that they'll they'll continue. Right. So it's almost like they'll be looking for an excuse to remove their sanctions on the West, so to mm -hmm. speak. Flip it around the other way. Other companies within Russia have sanctions imposed upon them because the oligarchs who run them are more closer to Putin. Putin has to be sitting there saying, 
thank God that I had that falling out with Britannon because now the real doesn't have sanctions on it and we can have some foreign exchange earnings in, in Russia by virtue of the fact that the nickel and PGM exports are still allowed. So while I might say I should, you know, nationalize that SOB's company, thank God I didn't. <laughs> Interesting. So, right, because that brings in foreign exchange. Fascinating. Okay, well, Jeffrey, if people want to learn more about your gold yearbook, uh, where should they go? You can go to our website, cpmgroup.com, and you probably will find there a, an invitation that you can link in for free to the online briefing on Wednesday morning, New York time. And then there's a place where you could pre-order or order the gold yearbook on our website. Fantastic. And you have a YouTube channel too, don't you? Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And that's just, I guess, CPM Group's uh, YouTube. I access it by going to YouTube and typing in CPM Group. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, Jeffrey Christian, Managing Partner of CPM Group, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you once again to Jeffrey Christian for the one-of-a-kind interview. And again, if you want to check out his Gold Yearbook webinar that is on Wednesday morning, New York time, the link is in the show notes or just go to cpmgroup.com. If you like what you're hearing, send it to your friends. Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. And until next week, take care. <laughs>